Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm James Kleiman, filling in for Sarah Wheeler today. Today, I am joined by HW editor Angelica Light, who will talk about all that's happening in the mortgage landscape, sales, acquisitions, deals, reverse happenings, as well as existing sales from January, and a little bit about the saga at Rocket Mortgage. Angelica, thanks for being with me. Hey, James. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. So even in a slow housing market, there's always quite a bit of news to get to. So why don't we start off with existing home sales, which came out Tuesday morning. Any takeaways from you on existing home sales today? Yeah. So in the words of a Zillow economist, uh, January's existing sales numbers were dismal. Uh, On a yearly basis, existing home sales were down about 36.9% from last January at an annualized rate of 4 million. That's down from 6.34 million in January, 2022. Uh, month over month, sales were pretty mixed um, across the US regions. Uh, the South and West registered increases from December, uh, while the East and Midwest experienced declines. Uh, all four regions recorded year over year declines. Did you say 4 million in annualized sales? That That's I, yeah. I was looking back on this, and that is the lowest level of home sales activity since January of 2020, of course, when the the pandemic just absolutely shut everything down in the whole economy. And before that, you have to actually go back to 2010 to see existing home sales at such a low level. Are there any bright spots in the data here? You know, there are. Uh, while home sales have fallen uh, for the last 12 months, um, the January decline is much smaller than the earlier drops, which is obviously a bright spot. Um, and even though inventory for existing sales is limited and will almost certainly remain so, uh, the backlog of new construction homes from the permit uh, boom during the pandemic should help to boost in- inventory in the spring. Um, Lawrence Yoon, the chief economist for uh, the, Nas- the National Association of Realtors uh, said that the home sales were bottoming out. And he noted that prices today vary depending on the market's affordability, um, with lower priced regions witnessing uh, modest growth and more expensive regions experiencing declines. Right. That, that seems to track based on what we've been seeing and, and using the Altos research platform. And, and I checked that out quite a bit. And, and, and I'm so curious, like, okay, what's what's going on in Boise this week? Or, or what happened to Austin? Or what's going on in my hometown? Or, uh, you know, parts of California? And, and if, if you look pretty closely, it's those really expensive parts, especially Northern California around the San Francisco area, that are really, really seeing big declines. Uh, but, but nationally speaking, I think a lot of this really, as it almost always does, comes down to two pretty big interrelated factors. And and that's, of course, always mortgage rates and then existing home inventory. And so if you look at January's existing sales, uh, you know, the deals went into contract in November, December. That's when the rates were locked. And and so it makes me wonder, what does that mean for February? Yeah. You know, looking forward, um, mortgage rates have eased up a bit uh, in the start of 2023. And that brought back some buyers who have taken advantage of the rates that were in the low to mid sixes. Um, we might see sales boosts in February if prices are still slowly rising. Right. I, I remember it was it was early February 
it was like a Thursday in early February and the rates fell to like 5.99%. And then the next day they jumped like 20, 21 basis points or something like that. And they've been basically climbing ever since. And I looked this morning and they're at 6.8%. And, <laughs> you know, depending on what you're reading, you might think that they're going to be in the 6.5 range in the next few weeks, or they could very easily be in the 7% range as well. And so it's, it's right. going to be pretty tricky. They, they could even get there later this week. So getting back to uh, to the inventory question, we saw a climb in inventory a few weeks back, um, but it's been trending down the last three weeks. And uh, this is the time when we traditionally start seeing inventory climb, but the opposite is happening at the moment. Right. So let, let's say that you're a buyer in the market right now and, and you don't have any obligation to sell or move or anything like that. You don't have to, but let's say you see a good deal. You take it, you probably get a mortgage and then you refine like a year or two, whenever rates really start to improve. But we haven't seen those home prices drop um, across the board, uh, certainly not enough to uh, overcome some of those affordability challenges. And and it's interesting if you look at the Altos research data, and, and I think the NAR data also bears very similar uh, trends, which is if, if you see inventory that's been sitting on the shelf for like 60 days, right, two months, um, they're typically, when they do sell, it's typically at 10% or more below the list price. The issue now is like, there's just, <laughs> oddly enough, in kind of like a paradoxical way, like there's not enough of those either. Um, you know, inventory is sitting on the shelf for longer. We're not seeing enough sales, but I do think it's going to happen. And, and you know, as you mentioned, we are seeing more, uh, you know, new home sales that are going to start, you know, helping this data a little bit. And then spring buying season is, is just around the corner, right? Right. Right. You know, and it's interesting, uh, the median price of existing home sales has dropped over $54,000 from its uh, June peak. So it's gone from 413.8 to about $359,000. Um, and existing home sales represent nearly 90% of all sales. So the fact that a majority of homes are lower in price than in June 2022 might be a sign that sellers are getting closer to finding the buyers in terms of affordability. Um, you know, perhaps we really are at the bottom of of um, where we want to be and things will improve soon. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. It's 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 a really difficult market. And, and I think it's difficult for buyers in every price point. You know, it's it's not like you go to a certain area of the country and you say, oh, well, rates here are in the in the fives and, and homes are all affordably priced and and I don't have any impediments to to getting in there and making it work. You know, I, I think about my own region here in the New York area and you still have like legitimate buyer like bonanzas. You will have people still spending fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars um, you know, over list price in some areas because there's no inventory and there's still a lot of money in some of these core urban areas, right? And so if you have another kid and you live in, you know, Manhattan and you decide you want to go to Scarsdale or you want to go to, you know, one of the Tony parts of New Jersey, um, you don't have a ton of options that work in the city. And I mean, there's no bargains in Manhattan real estate, right? So let's say you go to New Jersey, 
there are a lot of other people like you in Manhattan who also want to get out. And there's they're not building more homes in New Jersey. They're not building more homes in Scarsdale. And so areas like that, um, you know, you start to see a lot of the same conditions that were present during that kind of very crazy period where people are like, oh my God, how do I compete with somebody who's going to bid $200,000 over and waive all contingencies? Um, and so like in very specific pockets of the country, that dynamic exists, maybe not to the extreme that it did a year ago. And then you contrast it with other areas and, and say you go to maybe a, a slower part of the Midwest and pricing is finally coming down to where it should be. And there are some deals happening. We don't see, you know, crazy spikes like we did, um, you know, in, in what I call the pandemic. I know it's still happening, but it's um, it, it's really interesting that everything changes so much region to region and um, and, and look. Look at Florida. There are still parts of Florida in which, you know, home prices are still going way up, you know, 14, 15% um, and really defying kind of the odds. And so, you know, everything in this country is, is <laughs> for better and for worse about demographics and, and just what can be built and when. And, um, you know, that this market isn't getting any easier for anybody. You know, if you're a seller, you still have to buy in the same conditions unless you're downsizing and you don't need a mortgage, right? So, um, it's it's just a really really interesting market, and and we're starting to see that kind of dynamism, uh, hopefully kick up a little bit as inventory maybe stabilizes a little bit as we we start to enter you know what what is kind of the traditional buying season. So we'll we'll keep everybody up to date on that. And and for now, I, I want to switch over to another topic. Um, my passion, of course, mortgage happenings. Uh, and and so on Monday, Keller Williams announced that its mortgage company, the appropriately named Keller Mortgage, uh, was being sold to Mutual of Omaha. And and when I say being sold, I, I mean like assets of it were being sold to Mutual of Omaha. And um, so maybe, Angelica, you could fill us in on what's going on there. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, very few details of the transaction were disclosed. So we don't know how much the assets sold for, and we don't know what percentage of Keller Williams, the broke, I'm sorry, Keller Mortgage, the brokerage, will continue to hold. Um, with the deal, Keller Mortgage will become a Mutual of Omaha mortgage subsidiary and will operate along uh, alongside MOM's existing forward and reverse mortgage divisions. And current leadership will retain their positions within the company. Yeah, I'm glad you said MOM. I prefer to call it MOM just to confuse people. So it, it was smart of you to uh, to spell it out. Uh, but but yeah, I, I mean back back to topic here. I, I don't think this is really unexpected. And Keller Mortgage, like pretty much every lender out there, has been struggling for a while now. They had, I mean, they they really ballooned. They they were at like 500 something employees in 2020, and then you know a year later they were at pretty much double that. About a thousand employees and they've really been laying people off since the Fed started their hikes in in March of 2022 and and so when we talk about deals like this what typically happens when a, a mortgage lender like mom <laughs> um, you know takes takes over something like Keller mortgage is they're buying equipment they're buying the computers they're buying the data, right? So they're, they're buying that list of everybody who has ever uh, entered a transaction with Keller Mortgage. And they're also getting the real estate in most cases. So they're picking up the local branches and they, you know, they're headquartered in Ohio, but they have branches all over the country and in Florida and in Texas and, and in other areas. Here's where it gets dicey. They're almost certainly going to be cutting processors. They're going to be cutting underwriters. They're going to be cutting pretty much any non-sale staff 
with the exception of, you know, I, I know that some of the leader, the leadership is going to remain in place. They're going to want to keep the LOs, most likely. Keller Mortgage has about 100 loan officers. Um, that is pretty small compared to what they do at Mutual of Omaha, where they have probably about six, 700 loan officers. Um, and this is a pretty smart and one would think easy way to acquire some purchase business. And Mutual of Omaha Mortgage is not a purchase focused lender. You know, it's just not really what they do. And, and so if they're picking up, you know, Keller Mortgage is certainly not among the big boys in, in the origination space, but if you're adding, you know, what I, I think their mix was like 85% purchase over the last year. And they did just under, I don't, do you have it in front of you, Angelica? I think it was like a billion dollars in, in volume last year. Right. I mean, that's, that's sizable. That's something. Um, so this is not a company that is traditionally focused on it. Um, but they did about $7 billion in origination volume last year, Mutual of Omaha Mortgage. Yeah. So how much of that was forward versus reverse? Uh, Mutual of Omaha was like generally thought of as a reverse mortgage lender. They're pretty big in that channel. About 60% of their origination volume last year was reverse. So we're looking at about $4 billion and the rest was forward. So that's about $3 billion. So, you know, $3 billion uh, in a year is still definitely a, you know, not a small lender. It's I'd say a mid-sized lender at that stage. And I, I remember that when I assigned a story to the newsroom a few years ago, exploring these joint venture companies between mortgage lenders, like um, say a guaranteed rate, right? Or, uh, you know, alongside these real estate brokerages, like Compass has one, uh, Realogy now known as Anywhere Real Estate also has one. Um, and and my, my expectation at the time was that these would be really uh, purchase heavy mortgage lenders, right? And the thinking is like, these are mortgage companies that are affiliated with the brokerage that is handling the sale for the buyer. And so it stands to reason that they'd be able to pick up some of the business related, right? Because the average buyer in America doesn't like have their own loan officer, you know, like they don't do enough of these transactions. And obviously first time home buyers, unless their parents recommended somebody or their friend was a loan officer or worked at a lending shop, you know, like it, it's just, they would rely on a real estate agent uh, to recommend somebody for the transaction. And that's, you know, a critical part of how uh, lead generation works in this business. And so <laughs> I, I guess my, my very wrong assumption was that these JVs would be really close to the purchase action. And then, we ended up going through all the numbers of the the JV mortgage lenders, and they were pretty much in line with every other lender. And so, you know, if if it was something like sixty eight percent of their business was refi, and thirty two percent of it was purchase, that was also the case with you know these these mortgage companies that are jointly owned by a real estate brokerage. Mm. And that's really because the average buyer, you know, they're they're going to go with whoever the agent recommends, but because they're independent contractors. They have their people, right? Like they don't care if you work at an affiliated real estate company unless it makes their job easier and you provide real value. And then you combine that with like all the RESPA violations and just all the compliance that goes into making a recommendation uh, to your client to work with someone who has, uh, you know, a financial stake. Uh, it's 
it's just not a huge advantage. And so it just really never took off. And so these companies, I think, have been struggling just like everybody else. And they're just not set up to be, you know, refi machines or incredible purchase killers either. They're just very average mortgage lenders. And that's, you know, they're they're susceptible <laughs> to a lot of the same problems that are present across the board. And it's just they have to downsize. They have to find someone to buy them up. And Keller Williams, which is a private company, and so they don't disclose the financials behind these decisions. Um, I, I think they had to make a tough choice and say, we just, we can't financially carry uh, what is most likely, we don't know for sure, but not a money-making operation at present. Sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, the results of some of the other big JVs. Um, anywhere real estate has a JV with guaranteed rate uh, called guaranteed rate affinity. So we'll get some insights there. Uh, we also saw another deal this morning in the mortgage space. Finance of America continues to restructure its business to really become more of a pure play reverse mortgage shop at this point. Um, they're selling their fix and flip lending arm. Finance of America commercial to Rock Capital Holdings. Um, and according to the SEC filings, they could receive up to $30 million over the next three years in the sale. Yeah, kind of a weird deal, but not really an unexpected one. I've never seen it stretched out like that over three years. But, um, you know, I, I don't work in banking, so <laughs> maybe that's more common than I think. But yeah, I think this is interesting because that's a good amount of money to play with if you're only focused on the reverse mortgage space. You know, that's not as competitive uh, an industry as the forward space. And and I think it really speaks to their strategy, which is pretty interesting. So I imagine most people listening remember that they bought AAG, which of course is the biggest reverse mortgage lender in America by some distance. And, and really in doing deals like this, they're saying we want to be a very big fish in a fairly small pond, as opposed to being a medium sized fish in the ocean where there are a lot of predators and like all kinds of bottle conditions, like how many manatees get hit by like boats and stuff, you know, and die like, you know, like anything can happen in the ocean, right? The ocean's crazy. Um, ponds, not as crazy. So, you know, this is not to say that conditions aren't volatile in reverse. They are, you know, we've already seen a big lender uh, go under. We, we already see a lot of, um, you know, operational challenges there. But if you can execute, if you can make it, I think it's a really sensible approach. And so if you think about where they were in the forward business, geez, I mean, they were losing hundreds of millions of dollars every quarter in the forward business. And, and they paid their executives like crazy amounts of money for the privilege. Uh, but they've been pretty profitable in reverse. You know, they made money in the most recent quarter. They're going to be uh, issuing their earnings, I think, in the next week or so. And that could be, in the end, a really good business for them. Yeah, you know, and the demographics are uh, they are favorable too. Um, there's no birth boom in America, and a lot of Americans will need to tap into the equity in their homes as they uh, as they get older. It's not like everyone has pensions or reliable retirement options to rely on. No, it's true, and and you know, in, in my own situation, um, so my my wife's grandmother, she's a hundred years old, she's turning one hundred and one, and her daughter, uh, my wife's aunt, has been her caretaker for fifteen years, and they have a big home in uh, in Long Island. And, it, you know, it's been in the family for 70 something years. And it is an heirloom. It is an estate of sort that you want to pass on to your kids. Um, but it also costs a heck of a lot of money to maintain. And 
we're talking about a 100 year old woman and a 75 year old woman. And they have a kind of, you know, a place that they go to over the winter in Puerto Rico. And that's just a little condo, but they are retired. They don't have liquidity. You know, my, my wife's 100 year old grandma isn't day trading. You know, she's not, she doesn't have a lot of income streams. coming. She has no income streams coming in, uh, you know, and, and so, they're not in as good health as they once were. And so now we're facing the question, do we need to sell? Are, are there mortgage products that might make sense in this case? Um, maybe, possibly, right? Um, but but the reality is we have a lot of older Americans in this country and the boomers are going to be retiring. They're going to um, you know, need, if they don't have a great retirement plan, if certain things don't break right, if their health isn't, you know, what they expected at, at this period in their life, um, where do you find money? You know, for a lot of people, it's the house, right? And so uh, I, I think that this product has a lot of um, potential long-term, but I mean, these are really choppy waters in the interim. And I don't quite know uh, if if some of them can survive the the margins right now. I mean, Geez, if rates are in the sevens for, you know, conventional conforming mortgage rate right now, in reverse, they're they're even higher, and, and just the economics are much more difficult. So, you have to be a really disciplined, really well managed company to overcome market conditions like that because they're just like there's no demand for services like that, um, and people are often going to explore other options before they get there. And so, you know, it, it's just it's it's a really tough product to sell in a market like this, and if you don't have maybe a year's worth of cash on hand to withstand uh, the conditions, you may not make it. You you may not see the demographic wave really play out in your favor. So I also want to talk about one more story. I, I know we've already touched on two of them uh, and I've already talked about mom, you know, mutual of, <laughs> of Omaha mortgage. Um, but I, I really want to talk about the story that Flavia Ferland Nunez published this morning about rocket companies. She spoke to a lot of analysts who cover the lender to get a better sense of really Wall Street's take on Jay Farner's surprising resignation. And and, and just to cover a little bit of ground quickly on this one, uh, because I know we're running out of time, is what really jumped out at me in this story is the idea that Rocket, this, you know, like big innovator, the 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 king of mortgage in some respects, is at almost like a crossroads, you know, they, they have these market conditions that are not optimal for their business. Uh, Not that anyone is really thriving right now, but rocket is so much um, depending on refis as part of their natural flow of business. And they're also, they're, they're attempting to emerge now as a FinTech and, and doing so as a FinTech with, with a variety of different products and services. And so they're very much in the early stages of that. But if you look at the here and the now, Rocket's business is 85% mortgage. It is a mortgage company, you know, even if they have these other business products and lines that they're trying to get off the ground. And so if you look at where market conditions are, if they remain like this, there's a very good chance Rocket is not profitable. We know they weren't profitable in the third quarter, probably won't be in the fourth quarter. Most of the analysts we spoke to didn't expect them to be profitable in the first quarter. Some said maybe in the second quarter, and some others still said probably not until the third quarter will they actually turn a profit. So that if that were to occur, and we don't know that it will, of course, um, that would mean a year, a full year of Rocket not being profitable. 
And even though they have a ton of money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, and if anybody is positioned to withstand um, all of those difficulties, it's Rocket. Investors don't want a year of you not being profitable. Investors, we know from looking at the stock prices and, and you know, their, their buying and selling patterns here, don't view mortgage as a particularly good business to invest in right now. And when you contrast that with the idea that Rocket is at the same time trying to evolve into a fintech and now will be doing so without the man who began that transition, Jay Farner, it, it makes you wonder, right? Like what what is the future of, of Rocket? And I just don't know. You know, we 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 look at their strategy and I think it's a really interesting strategy, which is you know, the way they describe it is they want to bring in members, they, they want to bring members to these other business lines to maintain a relationship before they're ready to buy a home. So, you know, they have like a car insurance platform, right? Vehicle, it doesn't have to be a car. Um, they have solar, right? They have what was Truebill, which is now Rocket Money. It's, you know, a, a money management app, right? And the whole idea of is that you want to offer value to the customer, and so you need to have multiple products and services. And, and Jay Farner himself said this in a 2022 interview. And, and he goes on to say, the mortgage, which is incredibly challenging and difficult, is where we started. I like the fact that we're able to figure that out because the additional challenges we take on typically require less of everything compared to what a mortgage requires. So additional products and services will be easier than the work we did for mortgages. But mortgages feed everything. We've done a great job, I believe, of strengthening our brand. But the cost to market without a way to engage clients over the lifetime is too great. That's not sustainable unless you have all the components. We focus on the lifetime value of the client when we make a marketing dollar investment. And he added, we've got to know that our platform will monetize that at some point in time, whether it's through a Truebill subscription, a purchase of an automobile, or the purchase or the refinance of a home, a debt consolidation loan, or putting solar panels on somebody's home, we have to have that certainty that we'll be able to capture that lifetime value. And I think this this is everything, right? And so Rocket has been, I think, very clear in, in this idea that they don't want to just be known as a mortgage lender, that they don't think you know, from transaction to transaction, that they're thinking much broader and they want they want like seven different transactions with that one client. Um, but will that client, you know, that, that client has to agree that there's value every step along the way, right? Because they don't have an allegiance to Rocket. Like there's no, you know, there, there's no impetus for them to do that. And, and very few people are going to be, you know, refinancing or buying a home in the next at least year. And so Rocket has this challenge, right, where there's, a short-term problem and potentially potentially a long-term problem as well. But I think when you consider the total addressable market of auto loans, mortgages, personal finance, uh, solar, they have much more potential than any other lender out there. But can you do it? And and you know, it's gonna come down to execution. Sure. Uh, so what? So what are the uh, what's the outlook in terms of finding a new leader to replace Farner? So in the interim, Bill Emerson, 
who was Jay Farner's predecessor, uh, will take both his board seat, which has already happened, and and he's going to be the interim CEO starting on June first. And Rocket has said that they're going to explore both internal and external candidates in terms of replacing Farner. And it's it's interesting because if you're looking for a mortgage operator, they have a ton of in-house candidates. You know, Rocket is a mortgage lender, and they have a lot of very experienced, smart people who have been doing this, who have been through many cycles. At, and, and look, even Emerson might stay for a while. They might just decide on June 1st that given the market conditions and, and where they are, and given that 85% of their business remains mortgages, that that's probably where you want to be uh, you know, steady Eddie at, right? But if they identify as a fintech for the first time in their history as a company, they might have to look beyond their current staff to find a new leader. And how they'll build mortgages and all of these other potential lending strategies into one cohesive, focused vision is really going to determine how Rocket does, I think, five years from now. So I I feel like this is a really critical moment in their history. And uh, we're, we're going to be very, very interested in uh, the earnings call that comes up in in a little over a week. So stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> and uh, and if you have any questions, please uh, shoot them over to us. My email is james at hwmedia.com. And that is angelica at hwmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles will bring together the nation's top residential real estate CEOs, presidents, and C-level leadership teams to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's GOE is at Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th until the 21st. Learn more and register your spot on the events page at realtrends.com. And we can't wait to see you in Austin. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.